I start at page 90. The dawn of a new age in women's rights. It is only fitting here to focus our attention to that dark period of time in the history of Arabia when Islam came to be born, through divine instructions as we Muslims believe, or as the personal teachings of Muhammad وسلم, as the non-Muslims would have it. Whatever the view of some theologians, Islamic teachings regarding the segregation of sexes did not represent Arab behavior at all. The society in Arabia at that time was extremely paradoxical in its attitude towards women. On the one hand, sexual permissiveness, the free mixing of men and women and mad orgies of wine, women and song were the highlights of Arab society. On the other hand, the birth of a girl was considered to be a matter of disgrace and extreme shame. Some proud Arabs are even reported to have buried their newborn daughters with their own hands to escape this ignominy. Women were treated as chattels and were deprived the right to oppose their husbands, fathers, or other male members of the society. However, there were exceptions to the, to the rule. Occasionally, a woman of outstanding leadership quality would play a significant role in the affairs of the tribe. Islam changed all that, not as a natural progressive outcome of social tensions, but as an arbiter of values. A social system was dictated from on high, which was unrelated to the normal forces which shaped a society. Through the teachings of segregation, sexual anarchy was brought to a sudden halt. Order between male and female relationship was established on the basis of deep moral principles. The status of women was simultaneously raised to such high standards that they could no longer be treated as helpless commodities. They were given equal share in the affairs of life, whereas previously they were distributed as chattels of inheritance. Now they could inherit not only the estates of their fathers, but also of their husbands, children, and, and next of kin. They could now stand up to their husbands and talk back to them. They could reason with them and, of course, had the full right to disagree. They could not only be divorced, but they had equal rights to divorce their husbands if they so pleased. As mothers, they were treated with such profound respect in Islam as is hard to find in similar example as is hard to find a similar example in other societies of the world. It was the Holy Father وسلم, of Islam who was to stand for the rights of women by declaring under divine instructions that paradise lies under the feet of your mothers. He was not only referring to a promise to be fulfilled in life after death, but to the social paradise which was promised to a people who showed profound respect and reverence to their mothers and were dedicated to please them and provide every possible comfort for them. The teaching of segregation should be understood in this context. It was not the outcome of any male superiority, but was designed to establish the sanctity of the home, to create greater trust between man and wife, bring temperance to basic human urges, and to harness the discipline and to harness and discipline them so that, instead of being released as powerful demons in the society, they play a constructive role, just as harnessed forces play a role in nature. Segregation is grossly misunderstood when it is conceived as an imposition of restriction on female members of a Muslim society 
from fully participating in all spheres of human activities. This is not true. The Islamic concept of segregation is only to be understood in the context of measures to protect the sanctity of female chastity and the honor of women in society, so that the dangers of violating these objectives are minimized. Free mixing of both sexes and clandestine affairs between men and women are strongly discouraged. Men and women are both advised to abstain not only from casting covetous eyes at each other, but to abstain from such visual or physical contacts as may lead to uncontrollable temptations. Women are expected to cover themselves decently and are advised not to behave in a manner as to attract untoward attention from wayward men. The use of cosmetics and ornaments are not forbidden, but they should not be worn when appearing in public to attract attention. We fully understand that, in the present mood of societies all over the world, this teaching appears to be rather harsh, restrictive, and colorless. However, a deeper study of the entire Islamic social system may lead one to believe this judgment to be hasty and superficial. This teaching should, therefore, be understood as an integral part of the entire Islamic social climate. The role which women play in the Islamic social system is certainly not of concubines in harems, nor of a society imprisoned in the four walls of their homes, barred from progress and deprived of the four walls of the light of knowledge. This ugly picture of Islamic social system is only painted by internal or external enemies of Islam or by scholars who grossly misunderstand the Islamic way of life. The only thing which Islam would not endorse would be to turn women into playthings, to be exploited or left at the mercy of male vulgarity. Islam does not promote such attitudes towards women. Merely because society as a whole has become more and more demanding, it is sheer cruelty to women if it necessitates that they must always remain conscious of their looks, appearances, and the way they are dressed and made up. Feminine charms are always on display. Even selling an article of food or daily needs, such as a washing powder, requires advertisements with female models. Artificial, stylish, and expensive ways of life are presented as essential for a woman to realize her dreams. Such a society cannot remain balanced, sober, and healthy for long. According to Islam, women must be emancipated from exploitation and playing a role of being mere instruments of pleasure. They must have more time to themselves to discharge their responsibilities towards their homes and the future generation of mankind. Equal Rights for Women You hear so much about women's lib and women's rights, etc. Islam speaks of a comprehensive fundamental principle which covers all situations. And they, the women, have rights similar and equal to those of men over them in equity. That is, for women, there are exactly equal rights as for men, as men have rights upon women. There is thus total equality and there is no difference whatsoever between the fundamental human rights of women and men. But men have a degree of advantage over them, and Allah is mighty and wise. In another part of the verse of the Holy Quran, it is stated, 
الرجال قوامون على النساء بما فضل الله بعضهم على بعض وبما أنفقوا من أموالهم Men are appointed guardians over women because of that in respect of which Allah has made some of them excel others despite the fact that they spend of their wealth. From the Arabic word, قوامون Guardians made responsible to keep their words on the right path. Some medieval-minded ulamas, that's doctors of religion, that use and claim the superiority of men over women, whereas the verse only refers to an advantage that the breadwinner has over his dependents. As such, the guardian is better qualified to exert moral pressure on their words to continue to remain on the right path. As far as basic human rights are concerned, it does not in any way refer to women being unequal or to men's superiority over women. The last part of the verse refers to the above-mentioned advantage and makes it manifestly clear that despite this advantage, the fundamental rights of women are exactly equal to those of men. The Arabic letters wa is to be translated as despite the fact that or while and in this context seems to be the only correct translation. Polygamy. In the West, it is quite common to confront a speaker on the subject of Islam with the question, does Islam permit one to marry four times and keep four wives simultaneously? I have had vast experience in addressing many public and select gatherings of intellectuals in the Western world. Seldom do I remember an occasion when this question was not raised. More often than not, a lady would stand up and, of course, with due apologies, innocently inquire whether Islam permits four wives or not. Obviously, everybody knows the answer, but perhaps this is the only aspect of Islam which is so widely known in the West. The other well-known aspect is terrorism, but terrorism has nothing to do with Islam. What sort of equality between man and woman does Islam propound when man is permitted to have four wives and a woman can keep only one husband? This is another form of the same question, which I believe is only used as a ploy to wipe out any good impression about Islam, which may have been built by the speaker. In less formal assemblies, wherein civilities and uh, courtesies are not meticulously adhered to, the same inquiry attains the nature of mockery rather than that of a simple question. Many decades ago, when I was at the SOAS, School of Oriental and African Studies, University of London. A Pakistani student was plagued by an English fellow student with the same question repeatedly and somehow it never failed to elicit laughter. Once, I remember, he was pushed, perhaps too far, when he suddenly turned back and asked the young Englishman, why do you object to us having four mothers when you have no objection against having four fathers? That's four fathers. A pun of the word four which effectively turned the table against the teaser. Apparently, it was a joke. But when you examine it closely, you will discover more than a joke. For it refers to a tragic situation prevailing in societies and offers a befitting case for comparing the attitude of Islam with that of modern society. It is not only a matter for carefree student assemblies, but even the serious-minded, highly respected members of society do not consider it unkind and discourteous to express their disapproval of this injunction with a joke. Not long ago, I received a letter from a senior judge in Frankfurt, whom I personally know to be a very wise 
open-minded, courteous, and well-meaning person. He, too, objected to the Islamic provision on limited polygamy and could not suppress the temptations to drive the point home with the help of a crude joke, or at least so I thought. For a fleeting moment, I thought of returning the compliment of his joke with the joke about forefathers, but discretion had the better of me. The brief answer I sent him was to the effect that, first, this provision in Islam of marrying more than once is not a generality. It pertains to certain situations when it becomes necessary for both preserving the health of society and the right of women to have this provision available. The Holy Quran is a logical book. As such, it could not have instructed Muslims to achieve the impossible. God has created men and women in almost equal numbers, with a few pluses and minuses here and there. How could a rational religion like Islam, which repeatedly emphasizes the fact that there is no inconsistency between the act of God and the word of God, preach something so glaringly unnatural and unrealistic, which, if attempted, would create grave situations of imbalance, insurmountable difficulties or frustrations. Imagine a small country of one million men of marriageable age and almost the same number of women. If this provision was taken to be an injunction to be followed to the letter of the law by all, then, at best, 250,000 men will marry one million women and 750,000 men will be left without a wife. Yet, among all the religions of the world, Islam stands out in its emphasis on marriage for every man and woman. The Holy Quran describes the relationship between husband and wife as based on love by nature and providing a source of peace for each other. And lawful for you are chaste believing women and chaste women from among those who were given the book before you, when you give them their diaries, contracting valid marriages, not committing fornication, nor taking secret paramours. At the same time, the Holy Quran rejects celibacy declaring it to be a man-made institution. There is nothing to, go, to be gained from shutting oneself from the rest of the world or from punishing oneself by denying natural desires. The institution of marriage is well established in Islam, but time does not permit me to digress and discuss the various requirements of choosing married partners, the remedies available, and the regulations of divorce, etc. To return to polygamy, it is evident from a study of the Holy Quran that a special situation of a post-war period is being discussed. It is a time when a society is left with a large number of orphans and young widows, and the balance of male and female population is severely disturbed. A similar situation prevailed in Germany after the Second World War. Islam not being the predominant religion of Germany, Germany was left with no solution for the problem. The strictly, the strictly monogamous teachings of Christianity could offer no relief. As such, the people of Germany had to suffer the consequence of these imbalances. There were a large number of virgins, dejected spinsters, and young widows for whom it was impossible to get married. Germany was not the only country in the vast continent of Europe to experience such social problem, uh, problems of extremely dangerous and gigantic proportions. 
it was too great a challenge for the post-war Western society to stem the tide and check the growth of moral degradation and promiscuity, which so naturally and exuberantly thrived on the prevailing imbalances. As can be plainly seen by every unbiased person, the only answer to all such problematic disturbances is to permit men to marry more than once. This is not proposed as a solution to satiate their sensual desires, but to meet the genuine requirements of a large number of women. If this very logical and realistic solution is rejected, the only alternative left for society is to rapidly degenerate into a growingly corrupt and permissive society. Alas, that seems to have been the option taken by the West. When you re-examine more realistically and unemotionally the two attitudes, you cannot fail to notice that it is not a question of equality between men and women, but it is simply a choice between responsibility and irresponsibility. Islam only permits marriage more than once with the proviso that men accept the challenge of such difficult and specific situations with full responsibility and met out the full measure of justice and equality to the second, third, or fourth wives as well. وَإِنْ خِفْتُمْ أَلَّا تُخْسِطُوا فِي الْيَتَامَى فَانْكِحُوا مَا طَابَ لَكُمْ مِنَ النِّسَاءِ مَثْنَى وَثُلَاثَ وَرُبَاعَ فَإِنْ خِفْتُمْ أَلَّا تَعْدِلُوا فَوَاحِدَةً أَوْ مَا مَلَكَتْ أَيْمَانُكُمْ ذَلِكَ أَدْنَى أَلَّا تَعُولُوا Should you apprehend that you will not be able to deal fairly with orphans, then marry of other women as may be agreeable to you, two or three or four. But if you apprehend that you will not deal justly and equally between them, then marry only one, or out of those over whom you have authority. That is the best way for you to ob obviate injustice. The alternative is much uglier. An excessive number of women left without marriage cannot be blamed for attempting to entice and allure, men, allure married men in societies, which are not deeply religious. After all, Women are humans too. They have their own emotions and unfulfilled desires. Whilst the psychological traumas of war have enhanced the urge for finding someone to turn to, a life without security of marriage and home, with no life partner and no hope for children, is a life which is empty. The future is as blank and bleak as the present. If such women are not lawfully accommodated and assimilated on the principle of give and take, it can play havoc with the peace of society. They will anyhow illegally share the husbands of married women. The outcome is bound to be preposterous. Loyalties will be split. Married women will begin to lose faith in their husbands. Suspicions will grow. The increasing lack of mutual trust between husband and wife will rock the foundation of many homes. For unfaithful men to live with a sense of crime and guilt will further generate psychological complexes and propensity towards more crime. The noble concept of love and loyalty would be among the prime victims. Romance would begin to lose sublimity and descend to commonplace, transient infatuation. Those who talk of equality in every sphere forget that the issue of equality becomes irrelevant in those areas where male and female are built differently. It is only women who can give birth to children. It is they alone who can go through more than nine months of nourishing the seed of human generation for the future. It is women again who can look after their babies. 
at least during the early period of infancy and childhood, as no man ever could. Because of the long and extremely intimate blood relationships with their offspring, it is the women who have far more powerful psychological bonding with the children as compared to men. If social and economic systems ignore this constitutional difference between man and woman, and the corresponding difference in the role of the two sexes in society, then such a socio-economic system is bound to fail to produce a state of healthy equilibrium. It is mainly because of these constitutional differences between male and female that Islam proposes correspondingly different rules for each. A woman must be kept free, as far as possible, from the responsibility of earning bread for the family. In principle, this responsibility must fall on the shoulders of men. Yet, there is no reason why women should be debarred from playing their part in turning the wheel of economy provided that they find themselves free to do so, i.e., without neglecting their prime responsibility of human reproduction, family care, and concomitant involvement. This is exactly what Islam proposes. Again, women in general have a weaker and comparatively frail constitution. Yet, surprisingly, God has provided them with tougher potentials in their physique. These attributes are mainly due to the presence of an extra half chromosome in their cells, which is responsible for the difference between men and women. This is obviously provided to meet the extra challenge placed on them during pregnancy, childbirth, and the lactation period. All the same, this potential does not make a woman outwardly stronger and tougher. They should not be relegated to hard menial tasks in the produ produ productive economic field merely in the name of equality or any other name. This also requires that they should be treated with more tenderness and kindness. Women should have a lesser load to bear in daily life and should not be forced to bear equal load with men in public activities. It emerges from the above that if the task of the running of a home is a special area of responsibility to be assigned to either man or woman, a woman has obviously much greater merit than a man to perform such responsibilities. Additionally, by nature, women have been assigned the responsibility of looking after the children. Such responsibility can only be partly shared with men. Women must be granted the right to remain at home far more than men if, at the same time, they are absorbed of the responsibility of earning their livelihood. The free time available to them must be employed for their own sake or for the sake of society as a whole. That is how the concept of a woman's place in the home is, the, is in the home is born. There is no question of their being tied to their aprons or imprisoned in the four walls of the home. In no way does Islam infringe the rights of women to go out in their spare time to perform any task or to participate in any healthy pursuit they may choose, providing, again, that they do not jeopardize the interests and rights of the future generation of mankind entrusted to them. Among other reasons, this is why over-socializing or the free mixing of sexes is strongly discouraged by Islam. For Islam to propose that the home is the center of a woman's activities is a very wise and practical solution to most ails of modern times. When women shift their interests away from the home, it has to be at the cost of family life and the neglect of children. To build a family life around the pivotal figure of a mother 
requires the strengthening of other blood relationships and other restoration of a genuine and the restoration of a genuine affinity with kith and kin. Even though each unit may live separately, this larger family concept is supported and promoted by Islam for many reasons, some of which are as follows. 1. It prevents imbalances from occurring in society. 2. If strong love and affection promoted in the family between brothers and sisters, father and daughters, mother and sons, etc., it would naturally lead to the consolidation and protection of a healthy family unit. This natural bonding is further strengthened by a system of relationships surrounding it in the form of genuine affinity and closeness between aunts, uncles, nieces, nephews, cousins, grandchildren, and grandparents. New avenues of seeking warmth and healthy pleasure derived from the consciousness of belonging would open up for this larger family system. 3. The institution of family in such cases is less likely to be fragmented. To share a common roof in the name of a family would no longer be as meaningless as we generally find today. The members of the family would continue to gravitate towards the central beacon of family elders. Most family activities would rotate around this axis. There would be no lone individuals forgotten, dejected, and relegated to the attic basements or basements of social order, or knocked out of families as useless articles. This exactly is the Islamic concept of homes and families, which is regarded as the most important central unit in society. It is mainly because of this difference in attitudes that today we find in the modern societies of the world a much greater indecence incidence of abandoned, old, or disabled parents considered as burdens on families.